0: science you can use the dr joe show on cjad 800 there's antimony arsenic aluminum selenium and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium and nickel neodymium neptunium germanium and iron americium ruthenium uranium europium zirconium lutetium, vanadium and lanthanum and osmium and astatine and radium and gold protectinium and indium and gallium <sighs> and iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium. Well, welcome, one and all. And I bet some of you are getting ready ready to barbecue barbecue on this beautiful Sunday afternoon. So we will talk about barbecuing, barbecuing, the uh, benefits and uh, sort of the risks. But before we get to some of the stuff we're going to discuss today, uh, let me get my questions out there for you. Semaglutide, uh, you know that as Ozempic, and it's prescribed as an injection for diabetes and at a higher concentration for uh, weight loss uh, as uh, Wegovi. What other positive effect has been anecdotally noted for semaglutide, uh, and uh, it's... A fascinating, I guess you would call it a a side effect, but a a positive one. So what positive side effect has been noted for Ozempic, semaglutide? And the second question, in 1921, 14 year old Leonard Thompson was the first person to be injected fluid extracted from the organ of a cow. What organ was that? If you know the answer to those questions you give us a call at 514-790-0800 and of course you can also text to 514-800. There are a couple of uh, uh, questions that were uh, left over from uh, uh, last week so let me just uh, deal with that because I I actually had the answers texted in uh, but I never got around to reading the text because we were getting to the end of the show. Uh, So one of the questions was in 1899, what drug company published a small reference book for physicians and pharmacists that included bloodletting, arsenic, and almond bread amongst the treatment recommendations? Well, that was the Merck Manual published by Merck and it listed treatments for bronchitis, impotence, and diabetes, respectively. In 2014, the manual moved to online only, and it's available free in both professional and consumer versions. And it always makes for interesting reading. Anything that you wanna know what medicine is in there, and it's all free information, you can look online for the Merck manual. The other question that uh, I didn't really have time to discuss, uh, I asked, uh, In the UK, some banks and mortgage companies have refused mortgage applications if a certain plant is found growing on the property to be purchased. And I wanted to know what that plant was. It is the Japanese knotweed. It's a terribly invasive plant that can take over a garden. It can grow up to several meters and its root system is extensive, very difficult to control. Uh, You can use glyphosate, that's Roundup, Uh, But the best uh, is to dig up the rhizomes. But this is difficult and presents a problem of what to do with them once you dug them up. How do you safely dispose of them without them taking root somewhere else? So the Japanese knotweed, yeah, that's a tough one to deal with. Okay, let me repeat my two questions for today. Semaglutide, you know that is a Zempic. Uh, It's an injection for diabetes and higher concentrations as way for weight control. What other positive effect has been anecdotally noted for this chemical semaglutide? And the other question, 1921, 14-year-old Leonard Thompson was the first person to be injected with fluid extracted from the organ of a cow What organ was that? Again, 514-790-0800 or 514-800 if you want to text your uh, information. Um, All right, I want to tell you about uh, uh, something interesting that I I, uh, kind of uh, came across uh, uh, this week. And it was uh, really thanks to one of my listeners way down in New Zealand, and we have them all over the globe. And uh, I was sent something that I had never heard of, never heard of, which was freeze-dried feijoa. And you spell it F-E-I-J-O-A. And uh, yeah, you're probably wondering what on earth that is. Well, uh, it's uh, a fruit. It kind of looks like a, a very small green avocado and apparently very, very popular in New Zealand, but it has a very short growing season. I think it's also grown as an ornamental tree because it's 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 very pretty. So anyway, the, the fruit of this uh, tree can be uh, eaten fresh. I think you eat it like a kiwi, you cut it in half and then you scoop it out. Uh, but it's said, only available for a couple of months. So they've also learned how to freeze dry it. And uh, that's what uh, I was sent. And it's a little package. The thing is extremely light, of course, because all the moisture has been uh, taken out. And it has a very interesting smell and a very interesting uh, taste. And uh, there's a lot that is written about this online. New Zealanders tend to be very, very protective of this, and they don't put up with uh, anyone insulting this, although I don't think they look at it as the national fruit, I mean, that probably is the kiwi, but it comes pretty uh, close to that. And if anyone attacks it, boy, uh, they don't take that very well, as I discovered from looking at some of the literature uh, online uh some describe it as as putting perfume into your mouth others describe it as eating soap and then others uh describe it as uh being in nirvana uh, being the best thing that they ever tasted Uh, so i you know opened this package and i was very keen to uh to try it and i even looked uh into it scientifically before uh, trying it to see just you know what the chemical composition was, and I actually did find a published paper online and uh, you know these days when you want to analyze the composition of uh, some natural product, we use a technique called gas chromatography and mass spectrometry and uh, the researchers in this paper were able to identify uh, uh, over a dozen different uh, compounds. Which is, of course, not unusual. Fruits are very, very complex uh, mixtures, and um, they particularly zeroed in on ethyl butanoate, methyl benzoate, and ethyl benzoate as being responsible for the aroma. Uh, well, I'm I'm kind of familiar with uh, methyl benzoate, having worked in organic labs. I couldn't really. Uh, sniff, uh, uh, sniff that out. But then again, the gas chromatograph is uh, a lot more able to detect things than uh, my nose. Anyway, uh, so I uh, gave this um, a shot. Uh, I first read the label. Of course, it says gluten-free, vegan-friendly, non-GMO, preservative-free. Uh, those are the kind of things that you know you see so often on labels uh, these days. It's essentially, uh, meaningless. And uh, it it certainly was a very interesting experience. It's very difficult to to describe. It it does have somewhat of a citrusy uh, taste, and uh, it's different from anything that I've uh, I've tasted before. Uh, and uh, I kind of gave it a, a grade. If we're going to scale it one to ten, with ten being loving it, I would say about a seven or an eight. Uh, I'd be happy to try the fresh version, of course, because uh, I think that probably tastes uh, different. But it was a unique experience, you know, and uh, how often is it in life that you try something for the very first time? And uh, so that's it. That's my Feijoa story. And uh, I don't think it's available here. Uh, I looked for it on, uh, online and uh, there was one company that seemed to s- sell the same freeze-dried version as the one I tried, but they're out of stock because I think it, it's, uh, the supply of this is not uh, very large uh, given that uh, you know, the, the, the tree only fruits for a couple of months. And uh, I guess it's very popular in New Zealand and the population there just eats it up. Anyway, now I have learned about Fay and so have you. So James knew the answer to my question about the boy who was injected, 18 year old boy who was injected with an extract of an organ of a cow. James always knows the answer. And that organ of course was the pancreas. And this was in 1921 when young Leonard Thompson who was near death from diabetes uh, was injected at the Toronto General Hospital with an extract of uh, of the pancreas. And of course, this was the first time that anyone had been effectively treated with insulin, and this was a huge landmark. Now, I'm ticked off about something. Uh, the American Chemical Society publishes a, a weekly magazine, Chemical and Engineering News, which is excellent. I get this all the time, and I refer to it, they have great articles. And uh, they also recognize some historic uh, chemical landmarks where uh, some significant achievement in chemistry uh, occurred and a plaque is put in that place. Well, they have an article here uh, in the May 8th issue which recognizes the role of the Eli Lilly pharmaceutical company who were the first ones to produce insulin on a commercial basis and this was very soon after uh, the discovery at the University of, uh, of Toronto uh, within a year Eli Lilly was producing it and this this indeed was a huge breakthrough and uh, they uh, are recognizing uh, the, the the place in Indianapolis where Eli Lilly uh, produced the first commercial versions of, of insulin and of course I have No bone to pick with that. It it is an appropriate recognition. But I can tell you that I have never seen an article written about the discovery of insulin without mentioning the discoverers, who of course were Banting and Best at the University of Toronto. Uh, And and, uh, uh, to write an article about insulin, especially, recognizing some aspect of of, uh, the use of insulin like with with Eli Lilly, and not mention the discoverers being Banting and Best. It is like talking about uh, penicillin and recognizing St. Mary's Hospital in New York, where the discovery was made without mentioning Alexander Fleming. Uh, So to me, this is absolutely mind-boggling. Uh, The the headline of this article is ACS, the American Chemical Society, honors insulin development. And uh, yes, Eli Lilly should be honored for uh, producing insulin commercially, but to not mention that uh, insulin was discovered by Banting and Best, uh, to me is is, is just uh, unconscionable and unbelievable anyway I, I will write a letter to the editor expressing that and see whether or not they do anything uh I don't know if it's just a symptom of you know uh, Americans not recognizing anything that was made outside of uh of the United States but uh obviously uh insulin was a canadian uh discovery okay uh so that that uh uh that question was uh, answered by by James, and the the other question that I asked was about some of uh, glutide, which is um, Ozempic, as as you know it, uh, prescribed for diabetes, and also for weight loss, as as we And I wanted to know about uh, what side effect has been anecdotally uh, noted, and I did get uh, an answer from Spiros about that, who says that that it has a role to play in long COVID, actually. Th- that is true. Uh, this is not what I was after, but uh, there. There are some experiments on the way uh, because uh, uh, Ozempic also has an anti-inflammatory effect and that it might have some role to play in, in treating uh, infections. Uh, that, that was not what I was after. There's something that was much more in the news about the possible side effect of, um, of Ozempic that was noted by uh, people. So we'll still leave that uh, question uh, uh, question out there. All right, well, it's summer. So you're going to be firing up that barbecue. Throw those burgers, hot dogs, steaks on there. Let's talk about this a little bit. The word barbecue actually derives from an ancient Caribbean tradition of supporting food over a fire with a scaffolding made from green wood, which in Spanish was called barbacoa. The technique itself was referred to as a bucan and shipwrecked sailors and runaway servants who found themselves on Caribbean islands picked up the method and came to be called buccaneers, or in English, buccaneers. As the saying goes, if you play with fire, occasionally you'll get burned, especially if you try to rekindle smoldering charcoal with a squirt of lighter fluid. The fluid stream can catch fire and ignite the whole can, as well as its startled holder. The best way to light a charcoal fire is with an electric starter or with a newspaper tinder chimney. Real charcoal made by heating wood in absence of oxygen is easier to light than briquettes. It burns hotter, produces fewer noxious vapors, and leaves less residue. Briquettes are made from crushed, charred wood scraps to which fillers like starch or coal have been added. When these are used, Cooking should begin only after uniform covering of gray ash has formed, indicating that the fillers have all burned away. Now, gas barbecues. Believe it or not, they burn much cleaner and hotter than charcoal. As long as sufficient oxygen is available, propane is converted into carbon dioxide and water vapor. The gas flame should be mostly blue, some yellow at the tip. Too much yellow in the flame means that there's incomplete combustion. Yellow color is due to glowing pieces of soot, which form when a partially blocked gas pipe prevents proper mixing of the propane with oxygen. Well, soot is an intricate network of carbon atoms with a very large absorbent surface area. It can absorb some of the unhealthy components of incomplete combustion and deposit them on food. Gas pipes should therefore thoroughly clean of cobwebs and soot at the beginning of each barbecuing season. So how many of you done that, checked your barbecue? No matter what precautions are taken, if you burn wood, coal, or meat, as of course happens on the barbecue, you will always produce some carcinogens. One of these is benzopyrene. We call this a polyaromatic hydrocarbon. It is so carcinogenic that it is routinely used to induce cancer in animals when a new cancer treatment has to be evaluated there are several factors which govern the amount of such polyaromatic hydrocarbons produced during barbecuing the temperature at which the food is cooked the fuel used and the fat content of the food basically the higher the temperature the more carcinogens form mesquite is a type of wood which is favored by some outdoor chefs because it imparts a unique flavor to the food. But you pay a price, not only at the cash register. The major component of mesquite is lignin, which burns much hotter than the cellulose that makes up the bulk of most other woods. As a consequence, the smoke produced by mesquite contains more than twice as many polyaromatics as other wood smokes. Okay, now. How can you minimize exposure to these nasty compounds? Pre-cooking meat in a microwave can minimize the time required on the grill. Barbecuing only low-fat foods, such as chicken or fish, also helps. Barbecue sauce, due to its high sugar content, burns very easily and should therefore be put on the food only near the end of the cooking process. The further the food is from the fire, less likely it is to be contaminated with carcinogens. In any case, if the food is too close to the fire, the outside will char quickly, but the inside will remain cool. Scientific explanation for this is that the outside cooks by heat radiation, but the inside cooks by conduction of heat via water. The aim therefore is to place the food far enough from the heat source so that browning rate matches the conduction rate. So there you go. You learned something about the science of barbecuing. Yeah, I was just uh, listening to the ads that were on uh, during the last couple of minutes and there was some mention about the difficulty of folding a fitted sheet. I can attest to that. That, that is a difficult thing. I've had to work at that because <laughs> I, I just wanted to, to master it. And it took me uh, a lot of tries uh, to do it. Uh, and uh, uh, it takes time to do it you can't rush it but uh, it's possible to learn to fold the fitted sheet okay i i think my remarks about uh, barbecuing uh, uh, created some interest because one of our uh, correspondents wants to know how to get the nice grill marks on the uh, chicken or the steak well the real key to that is to make sure that the grill is very very hot so you wanna get it to the maximum temperature before you put the, the meat on there. And if you want the sort of the nice checkered grill marks, then you put the steak on there with uh, uh, ends pointed towards uh, like 10 and four o'clock if you're looking at, at, at the clock, so sort of like crossways. And uh, as soon as you see the juices coming to the top, Then you turn the steak, you turn it uh, clockwise, you know, so that you know the 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 ends are in the two and eight o'clock position, and uh, wait again until uh, the juices rise to the top, and then uh, you should be getting the nice uh, checkered uh, uh, grill marks. But the real key is to get the uh, uh, the uh, grill very very hot all right um everyone is talking about memory right i i tell you you know obviously i get a lot of emails a lot of questions about all kinds of things but so often people want to know what to do to increase their memory and that is because uh, of course uh, as we age uh, memory is somewhat impaired so we want to know what to do about it well, there's a very interesting study in the US called the Co-Supplement and Multivitamin Outcomes Study. And uh, it has the acronym COSMOS, which is kind of interesting. Well, uh, some 21,000 people were uh, randomized, double-blind trial, uh, which is, of course, always what we look for, to take either a multivitamin, a cocoa extract, or a placebo uh, every day for three years. Why did they do this? because a large percentage of the population takes dietary supplements, hoping for some health benefit and researchers at Harvard University wanted to find out if there was any merit uh, to this so why multivitamins uh, because these are the most popular supplement, and uh, given that uh, you know vitamins uh, are an essential component of the diet uh one would think that they can reasonably be expected to provide some benefit. But many people also buy all kinds of natural herbal uh, supplements. And uh, cocoa extract seemed to the researchers to be a good representative of botanicals, since it contains a class of molecules called flavanols, particularly catechins and epicatechins. And in some previous studies, these have been shown to have positive effects they can lower blood pressure, they reduce inflammation. Uh, so, you know, it was something that seemed worthwhile to investigate. And the supplement that they used contained 500 milligrams of cocoa flavanols. And uh, the goal was to determine if either the cocoa extract or the multivitamin had any effect on uh, cardiovascular disease, cancer, or on cognition. Well, the cocoa extract had no effect on cancer. But it did reduce cardiovascular events and deaths from cardiovascular disease, but in a barely significant way. And, you know, as I've mentioned several times, you know, on this show, uh, statistical significance is not the same as a practical significance. Statistical significance just means that the results were not due to chance alone, but it doesn't mean that they would have a great impact on everyday life. So anyway, uh, multivitamins had no effect on cardiovascular disease at all, no effect on cancer overall. Now, they also tested cognitive abilities. And uh, a subgroup of the subjects of the 21,000 subjects completed annual telephone interviews to assess memory and thinking abilities. And another subgroup completed a more thorough annual assessment uh, on the web. So, you know, they sat in front of the computer and answered questions. The cocoa extract had no effect on cognition. So you can forget about taking that for this purpose. But taking multivitamins did result in modest improvement in memory. Now, such memory tests involve showing subjects names and various figures, and then later seeing which are recalled as having been previously seen. Whether an improvement on such a test has any practical significance when it comes to everyday life is certainly not clear. Maybe further experiments can pinpoint which components in the vitamin mix has effect on cognition, we may have something. Uh, So there doesn't seem to be much point in taking a cocoa extract, even less of a point in eating chocolate since processing has a negative impact on flavonols. Uh, furthermore, a higher percent of cocao does not necessarily translate to more flavanols. Now, as far as the multivitamins go, maybe taking one every day will help you remember to take one every day. That's about it. So, the, uh, the study is not all that impressive. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the kind of thing that gets a lot of headlines because any time that you notice any kind of an effect from a supplement connected to memory that will uh, generate uh, headlines but i think it's it's important to realize that these memory tests do not necessarily translate to everyday practical uh, significance and uh, unfortunately uh, cocoa extract or multivitamins if any, impact, it's going to be very small. But, Leah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with taking a multivitamin. I mean, some people take it because, you know, they want to kind of fill in the nutritional gaps that they think are present in their diet, and uh, I, I don't really have anything against taking uh, multivitamins. At least with multivitamins, you know that what is on the label really is in the product. So, you know, if it if it says it has 80 milligrams of vitamin C, it really does have that. Whereas with uh, general dietary supplements, you know, the, the plant extracts, you're really at the mercy of the provider. And what it says on the label may not be uh, a reflection of what is really in the uh, in, in the bottle. And uh, I mentioned uh, one um, study, I, I think I mentioned that to you uh, last time, about melatonin supplements, where the researchers uh, bought a bunch of them and uh, tested them to see whether or not what uh was said on the label was really found in the uh, in the bottle and they found that some had no melatonin at all some had uh, or oh, something like 300 percent more than what the uh, label said so uh you you can't trust the label you know in those uh, with those kind of, uh, of products and uh, this is uh, something that we really need to, to address uh, both uh, FDA and Health Canada have to, to uh, be more vigorous about this to somehow uh, uh, try to make uh, producers uh, conform, to make you know making sure that what it says on the label is what you get in the bottle, so uh, there's there's not much point in even talking about these studies you know about whether or not melatonin or cocoa extract or or uh, uh taurine or berberine or whatever happens to be the hot topic there's no point in talking about whether or not we we can reap their benefits if we don't know. What really is in the bottle. And that's a big difference from prescription drugs. You know, when you're prescribed an antibiotic and it says X milligrams, you know that that is what is exactly present uh, in there. You know, I'm very fond of saying that science normally just plods along, taking small steps, which is certainly correct. But you know, every once in a while, it does take a giant leap. And one of those leaps happened in 2012 with a publication of a paper in the journal Science. That's a highly respected uh, journal. And the paper was by Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna. And the title of this paper was A Programmable Dual RNA Guided DNA Endonuclease in Adaptive Bacterial Immunity. Well, that's a mouthful, right? And for anyone not involved in biotechnology, uh, that sounds like a a word salad, pretty well meaningless. But for anyone who was doing research in biotechnology, who was studying the functioning of genes, that paper was not only an eye-opener, it was a life changer, at least as far as their laboratory life was concerned because what uh, doctors uh, Charpentier and Dudna, who in 2020 received the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their work, discovered was a technique called CRISPR-Cas9, which is a technique to edit genes. Now this CRISPR-Cas9, well, I I don't even know if I want to tell you what that um, acronym uh, stands for. Well, maybe I will. Stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats and their Associated Protein 9. Okay, well, now you know. Anyway, what this, this complicated paper was all about was to deliver the message that it is possible in the laboratory in a relatively simple way to remove a gene from DNA. DNA, of course, is uh, uh, constantly talked about as the blueprint of life. It is a very, very long molecule that is found coiled up. It's this classic uh, uh, helix that you see pictures of, and it's in the nucleus of our cells. And what DNA does is tell the body which proteins it should make. And proteins are critical to life. Not only are they structural part of the human body, but enzymes which control every chemical reaction that goes in our body, uh, those are also proteins that are encoded in in, in DNA. Well, anyway, the researchers uh, uh, in this case found a way to make a specific cut in a DNA molecule exactly where they want. Now, DNA uh, segments of which are the so-called genes, which uh, basically control everything in our life. And uh, they found a way to basically make a cut in DNA and remove a gene, which means that you can remove whatever trait in in a person or in a plant that gene coded for. Now, this is very different from GMOs or genetically modified organisms, uh, which function by inserting some foreign DNA into an organism. For example, when you want to have corn that expresses uh, a, a toxin to ward off insects, that is done by inserting a gene from a bacterium, bacillus thuringiensis, which then tells the plant, to produce a protein that wards off insects. But there is insertion of a gene or DNA from a different organism that is very different from just removing a gene from an organism. That is not believed to have any kind of a consequence aside from just removing whatever trait that gene codes for. All right, now, why were researchers so excited about this uh, CRISPR-Cas9 technique? What does it allow someone to do? Well, let me give you the the most important uh, examples, which uh, will come from the area of of medicine. You know, there are all kinds of genetic diseases, things like hemophilia, Tay-Sachs, muscular dystrophy, uh, many, many others. If it is possible to knock out specifically the gene that makes people susceptible to that disease, we have the elimination of the disease. And this is not pie in the sky. This is something that is possible to do. And researchers are very close to accomplishing uh, some of this by basically using this uh, CRISPR, this gene editing technique on uh, uh, on an embryo. Uh, well, we'll see where this goes. Uh, I mean, of course, uh, the future is inherently unpredictable and uh, it may be that uh, there is some pitfall along the way. Uh, it doesn't look like it. But the technique can also be adapted to various kinds of, of foods. And I'll give you uh, an example. Uh, the root of the cassava plant is a staple food for some 500 million people in the developing world. But there's an issue with cassava. The root contains two compounds, linamarin and lotaustralin, and these contain cyanide, which can be released when the compounds are exposed to the enzyme, Linamarin it's located in the cell wall. So when the uh, tuber of the cassava is chewed or ground into uh, starch, the enzyme is released and subsequently so is the cyanide. And if it is eaten, it can cause paralysis of the legs, condition known as conzo. and in rare cases, it, it can even result in death from cyanide poisoning. Soaking, cooking, or fermentation can break down linamarin and lotaustralin, and the cyanide is then harmlessly released into the air. But unfortunately, this is not always properly done, and there are thousands of cases of conzo uh, every year. Well, researchers have been able to identify the uh, the gene that codes for uh, the enzymes that the plant needs to synthesize the problematic molecules, linamarine and lotaustralin. And uh, using this CRISPR-Cas9 technique, that gene can be specifically removed from the DNA of the plant without a anything else. So everything else will work properly in the plant, but it will not produce the problematic compounds. That's interesting. Uh, Another possibility is, uh, for example, mustard greens. These are very nutritious, but they're not popular as a salad ingredient because they are very bitter. And scientists at Pearwise, a company that aims to increase fruit and vegetable consumption through gene editing, have been able to eliminate the gene that codes for an enzyme, it's called myrosinase and this is responsible for releasing the bitter compound that's allyl isothiocyanate from its precursor so the hope is that mustard greens can replace lettuce which is a far less nutritious vegetable in the salad so it's it's a, a possibility the company is also working on cherries with no pits to make for less messy eating and raspberries with no seeds on the outside that get stuck in teeth now those are not earth-shaking developments, but pretty interesting. And in Japan, a tomato that has been gene edited to inactivate an enzyme that breaks down the fruit's natural content of gamma-aminobutyric acid is already on the market. And gamma-aminobutyric acid is said to reduce stress and is touted as a treatment for high blood pressure and insomnia. So you put that tomato in your salad and you will get those benefits, hopefully. So that's gene editing, fascinating discovery, well deserving of the Nobel Prize. And that is it. We have run out of time, but fear not. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.